Hey, this is Eric, and you're listening to the Story Church Podcast. Our podcast features audio from Sunday mornings at Story Church in Peru, Indiana, a community on the mission of connecting people's story to God's story. If you'd like to connect with us further, check out storyperu.com. Our hope is that today's episode helps you take your next step on your faith journey. Today we are uh, in week two of a series that we creatively titled Wisdom because we're talking about wisdom. And uh, if you uh, maybe had a dad like my dad, I feel like there is nothing that can replace the wisdom of a father, especially those like little one-liners that only dads can have. You know what I'm talking about when there's like the perfectly timed snarky often, sometimes a little corny uh, phrase placed in the right moment. I looked up a couple examples this week just to get us started. Uh, This is one that I can actually remember my dad genuinely saying to me. It's just cheesy and weird, but uh, he would always say like, be alert because the world needs more alerts. (laughs) But um, it's it's classic dad joke. It's perfect. Uh, Or how about this great wisdom from a dad? You can pick your friends, you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friends' noses. That's good advice. That will save you some trouble if you didn't know that one already. I really like this one. I found this one online. I hadn't heard it before, uh, but somebody said that their dad, every time he would give them a $20 bill, uh, he would say this. He would say, this is enough money to get into trouble, but not enough to get out. <laughs> and I love that. I'm totally going to use that as Eden gets older. Like, here you go, but you're on your own if you get in trouble with it. So uh, in all seriousness, we're talking about this idea of wisdom because wisdom is an incredibly significant topic that really can shape the quality and the direction of our lives, whether or not we have an understanding of what it means to live wisely and what uh, the questions that wisdom brings to the surface, like how we answer those questions matter. And uh, the questions we're looking at, we introduced last week, uh, wisdom begs the question, like what kind of world do we live in? And once we answer that, what does it look like to live well in the midst of that world? How do we make good decisions or wise decisions? And and wisdom even deals with that question of like, what do you do when life doesn't go according to plan? And so that's what we're exploring together. And the reality is all of us have an answer to those questions, whether we're aware of where that answer comes from or not. Uh, All of us in some way shape our worldview of what we think the good life is, of how we think the world works and what it looks like for us to live in the midst of it. And last week we said that sometimes we get that from just like the latest and greatest new idea in our culture. We always celebrate new stuff like new phones or sometimes new ideas. I talked about how I have books on my shelf from like 2010 that I feel like, man, that's old. Do they still know what's going on in the world anymore? Because life just seems to change really fast. So sometimes we just think the newest idea is the greatest idea. Uh, For others of us, we answer the question of what it looks like to live well uh, by either repeating or avoiding what was modeled for us. Uh, We said last week that often uh, the way we live is caught rather than taught. We look at the examples of those who went before us. And if you had great parents, maybe you're like, man, I want to be just like them. If you had not so great parents, maybe you're like, I'm going to be nothing like them. And it shaped the way that you navigate life. Uh, There's a lot of voices culturally that are just speaking into what a well-lived life really is, whether that's advertising or social media or the stuff we listen to or even the way we dress. Like there's all kinds of messages sent our way constantly about what it looks like to live well. And we even said last week that sometimes uh, we can draw conclusions or we can answer these big questions uh, based on bad assumptions that we make when we go through difficult things. And if you're here and you're going through something difficult right now, uh, we want you to know that, that, again, that pain is real, that your experience is real, but there can be this danger sometimes when we're going through difficult moments where we think, like, this is just the way the world is, right? We're struggling, and so we think good things never happen to me. Or, or why do things never go my way? This is just the cold world that we live in. And I just want to caution you, if you're in one of those moments, again, the pain is real and you're welcome here, but just be careful uh, about maybe the wisdom or pain or lack of wisdom sometimes that pain can introduce into our minds because it can distort the way we view things. But what we're doing 
in this series is not just like randomly looking at wisdom in general and trying to pick and choose the best answers that we can find, but we're actually looking at a specific collection of documents that are found about in the middle of the Bible that are actually known as wisdom literature. It's these three books that are unique uh, in terms of their features and their themes and their ideas. So we're doing a little bit of like Bible nerding through this series and looking at the context behind these books, but we're also looking at really practical ways that our worldview and that the worldview of the scriptures can actually shape how we live. And so the books we're looking at throughout this series uh, are the books of Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. These three books that are bound together, and they're unique because they offer a different perspective. And if you wanna hear a little more about this, um, our podcast is up from last week, and I went into a little more depth about some of the differences in the wisdom literature versus other uh, areas of scripture. But they share this unique perspective because these three books, uh, they were written by people who found themselves in the middle of the story of God. Uh, We believe here that scripture actually tells one unified story that points to Jesus. But what's really unique about these documents is these documents were written by people who found themselves in that story, but they don't actually write or do anything that advanced the story in these books. It's kind of like that was the context they live in, but they zoomed out and instead wrote from this perspective that was almost more like universal, looking at just how life actually happens. So there's no mention throughout these texts of like, Mount Sinai or Moses or worshiping at the temple or priests or the people of Israel, really, like all that is kind of conspicuously missing through these three documents, but instead it's this view of what life is really like and how life is meant to be lived. So it's this different perspective that these texts offer to us. Uh, They also uniquely offer a different authority. So a lot of times if you've ever read through the narrative of the Old Testament or the New Testament, but often in the Old Testament, uh, like Moses will go up on the mountain and he comes down with the tablets which have God's words on them, right? God speaks and he says, thou shalt do this and thou shalt not do that. And Moses delivers God's word to the people or later other prophets uh, would show up and they would say, thus saith the Lord, right? They're speaking on behalf of God. These three texts that we're looking at are unique in scripture because they actually begin with human wisdom. Uh, Proverbs starts out and says, these are words written from a father to a son. It's wisdom that's passed down generation over generation of humans. And what's so remarkable about these texts is God basically affirms this human experience and this perspective that humans had about their own experience in life and elevates to the status of God's word for people. God validates their perspective based on, uh, again, this human experience that's valued within it. It's a different thing from the way the rest of scripture typically works. But uh, something else we said last week is that this section of scripture is unique in and of itself, but each book within it is also unique. And we said it can be helpful to actually imagine uh, the voices of these texts as three distinct individuals. Uh, We said Proverbs is like the brilliant young teacher who is experienced in all kinds of areas of life. She's that like very specific friend who has very specific answers to all kinds of things. They're a great person to have around. Uh, Ecclesiastes, which is what we're going to look at today. We said Ecclesiastes is like the sharp middle-aged critic somebody who's lived some life, right? They've been through some stuff and they have some things to say about how life really works on the other side. And then Job, uh, which we'll wrap up the series next week looking at Job. Uh, Job is like the weathered old man who also has been through life, but has a perspective on uh, how God shows up in the midst of the ups and downs and difficulties of life. So last week we started out listening to the voice of Proverbs, the brilliant young teacher. And to catch you up or remind you, uh, what Proverbs says is Proverbs has this perspective that there is this invisible creative force in the universe that can guide people on how they should live. 
And I know that sounds kind of woo-woo, but I'm not talking like the Star Wars force or anything like that. Um, rather, in Hebrew, we taught you a Hebrew word last week, which is really fun to say. It's the word chokmah. So like you just hock up whatever you got in there and you add ma at the end. And it's the word chokmah. But chokmah is the word that we translate in English to wisdom. And chokmah is a force kind of like gravity where you can't see it, but it impacts us all the time. Uh, you can't like control it or, or whatever, but you can see the effects of it. And so chokmah is this principle that runs throughout all of creation, but more than just being uh, like a system or some kind of life hack thing that you can just figure out and do really well at, chokmah is actually a personal attribute of God that uh, the Hebrew people believed that God himself in his character had wisdom. And, and so when God created everything, he wove that wisdom into how our world works and it's at play and how everything works in our world. And, and so what that means for us last week, we said is that first, uh, wisdom is found in our relationship with God. That wisdom isn't just about practical tips or like getting really savvy at something, but because chokmah is actually an attribute of God, wisdom is found first in relationship with him that uh, Proverbs actually says fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or this reverence for God and the way that God views things is the beginning of what it looks like to live wisely and to live well. And so staying close to God helps us raise our awareness of what God thinks and what God desires. But we also said it involves other people too, that wisdom is found in relationship with God, but it's also found in the counsel of other peoples. And last week I gave a challenge uh, to those who may be a little more experienced in life to look at those who are younger and to actually contribute by bringing some of that experience to the table in their life, to talk about what they've experienced or what they've seen, to bring that wise counsel in the life of a younger person, or if you're on the younger end of the scale, uh, to be humble and to be open and willing to receive the wisdom of somebody who's gone before you, that wisdom is found in God and it's found in the counsel of others. And essentially, the book of Proverbs paints this beautiful picture of how life should work. It's this very uh, clean worldview which basically says fear the Lord and be wise and generally things will work out for you. And we've probably seen stuff like this play out before, right? I mean, the, the voice of Proverbs says, if you live wisely, things will go well. If you don't live wisely, things won't go as well. And that's kind of the simple scenario. And maybe if you're like me and you grew up in church, uh, that was like the worldview that was handed to you too. I know for me, it was pretty simply like boiled down to like, do all the things God says, don't do the things God says not to do, and you'll figure out the rest, right? Like it was this simple, like be wise, don't be a fool, you'll be okay kind of a message. And while uh, that's a helpful framework to live from, we left on a cliffhanger last week because sometimes life doesn't always work that way, does it? Like you can actually be wise, you can do the right thing, but in terms of our lived experience, we all probably know somebody or maybe you've been through something where you did the right thing, you did the wise thing, maybe even over a long amount of time, but it didn't seem to really pay off, right? Like I'm, I was thinking of some friends of mine who have college degrees. They went to school, they studied hard, like they got the, d the degree in their hand, they did their thing. And one of my friends, uh, he's like bussing tables down in Indianapolis. He's got the degree, but he's not able to use it because he just didn't get the job. A and that's how it worked out. He did everything right but his plan didn't go the way that he expected. Maybe for you, you saved and you invested wisely and things looked amazing and then the market crashed. And it's like, wh what happened, right? I was doing everything Proverbs says. I was living wisely, I was investing, I was savvy and the bottom just dropped out. Like there's these moments that happen in our lives or that we've seen in the lives of others where the voice of Proverbs doesn't really give voice to what's happening, where uh, this clean black and white cause and effect approach to life doesn't actually seem to hold up. And sometimes what happens is bad things happen to good people. 
good people who are doing what they ought to be doing, and it's hard to understand. On the flip side, sometimes good things happen to bad people, or at least people who aren't doing what they ought to. We've probably all seen somebody or know of somebody who's kind of like cheating the system a little bit, but they get the reward at the end. And it leaves this confusing perspective where it's like, which is it? Like Proverbs says, God says that there's this way of living, but life seems to say otherwise. That's why last week uh, we said that to look at any one of these books in isolation from the others is kind of a dangerous thing to do because you're only getting one perspective on what the Hebrew scriptures say about wisdom. That's why the series is three perspectives on living well because you really need to hold all three in tension with one another to get a full picture of what it means to live wisely. And that's why we're gonna continue the conversation today by looking at the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, Ecclesiastes, it's actually one of my favorite books of the Bible. I thought about making it its own series, uh, but it's kind of an odd book to be one of your favorite books of the Bible, because it's kind of a bummer. So uh, like, brace yourselves, it's gonna get a little depressing today, but we'll dig ourselves out at the end, okay? Uh, but it's one of my favorite books of the Bible because I, I think it's kind of like one of the punk rock books of the Bible where like punk rock, it, it tends to like criticize stuff, but it's not because it doesn't care, it's because it cares very deeply. A and so Ecclesiastes kind of has that voice where uh, the teacher whose voice we'll hear from throughout this text is very critical of all of these glitches in the system where the Proverbs worldview doesn't stand up to our lived experience. And, and he just talks about that again and again and again. And uh, we said that Ecclesiastes is like the sharp middle-aged critic, somebody who has lived long enough to be able to tell you how the world really works. Right? You've got your Proverbs version that maybe you grew up with, but, but Ecclesiastes has lived around. And uh, it reminded me of this Twitter account that was really popular in like the early 2010s, which I can't say the actual name in church, but uh, we'll call it Stuff My Dad Says. Uh, it was this Twitter account where this guy literally, he just would send out like little snippets, those one-liners of advice about what his dad said about how he should live. And uh, I can't share any of them with you either because like the language is horribly inappropriate. Typically the content is kind of inappropriate. So I'm not like recommending it, but something about that attitude of like the guy who's seen some stuff and is gonna tell his son, like this is how the world really works. That's kind of Ecclesiastes. Th there's this teacher who has experienced so many things and Ecclesiastes is this voice among the three wisdom voices in Hebrew scriptures that says, hey, wait a minute, Proverbs, like you're going too fast, you're going too far too soon because do you see all these other examples in life where what you're saying doesn't actually work out? Like what do you, what do, you do with that? H how do you reconcile that? And so in many ways, Proverbs, as we talked about last week, it valued the wisdom of the past. It was this ancient wisdom that was passed on from generation after generation after generation. But Ecclesiastes is unique in scripture because the teacher in Ecclesiastes draws all of his conclusions from experience. He basically is like living in the present and just trying out all these different things in life and reporting back on what he finds. And I think in many ways, it is like the perfect text for our cultural moment right now. Uh, you guys may or may not know or care about this because it's kind of like inside church world a big deal, but there's this buzzword that's been talked about in the American church, especially over the past few years, and it's this word deconstruction. Uh, particularly in like, younger people in the next generation, there are a lot of people who are just wrestling with uh, their faith and what's really substantial about it or what should be thrown out. And some of it has come from some of the abuses of power that we've heard and just some of the bad behavior we've seen in the church, but people are questioning things and they're, they're wondering, like, does it really hold up? And here's what I would say, uh, I actually believe that not all deconstruction is bad. Uh, not all deconstruction is bad. Sometimes, like there's kind of this fad phenomenon surrounding it, so some of it is a little like surface level, but if you really take deconstructing what you believe 
seriously and with the right posture, I think it can be a really powerful thing. And to illustrate what I mean that not all deconstruction is bad, um, I want to celebrate our team who came out to the building uh, yesterday to help us clean up and essentially deconstruct what is currently in uh, what will become the future home of Story Church. So we had a team of about 10 people who came out and spent their morning uh, just tearing stuff out of the wall or out of the ceiling. That was pretty much the instruction we gave was like just take it down. And so this is what it looked like when we first got there uh, before volunteers arrived. Sarah couldn't help herself. So she just like started tearing stuff down. Um, but you can see like there's that bar in the middle and we decided we wouldn't keep that. So uh, by the end of our time, here's what things looked like, uh, right? Cleaned up, bars out of the way. You can't really tell, but in the ceiling, there was a ton of conduit and electrical stuff that we took down. Uh, but I was thinking about the work that we did yesterday, arguably a lot of deconstruction, right? All this stuff was put in place and we removed it. But the way we treated what we found was different based on what we found. So there were like that bar, we're not gonna use that bar. In fact, when we started peeling it back, it was all moldy and nasty underneath. And so we just took a sledgehammer to it, right? We demolished that thing, it's in a big pile, it's going in a dumpster, it's going away because it wasn't helpful, it wasn't useful, it was rotten at the core. But we took it out of there. There were other things like the conduit in the ceiling that we took apart and we stacked off to the side because we can reuse it for our purpose. Like it's still useful to us. That's the kind of deconstruction that can actually be helpful as it relates to our faith. Like sometimes when we dig in, maybe you will find things that you're like, man, that's rotten at the core, right? That, that should have never been there. And it's okay to throw that stuff out, especially in the context of community who can help you navigate that. But other times we find things and we're like, you know what? I need to view this differently or use it differently as I've grown as a person, but it's still useful. It's still helpful to shape my worldview. And so I'm talking about all that because, I mean, I believe sometimes this deconstructing idea is actually another word for discipleship or another word for growing in our faith because questioning our faith is one of the things sometimes that causes us to grow. And that's the posture that the teacher in Ecclesiastes takes. The teacher's voice essentially is relentless in taking apart the simple black and white cause and effect view of God in the world that we heard from Proverbs and how things ought to work. And so before I share with you some of uh, what the teacher does, I wanna give you a little bit of context because I keep referring to the teacher, but there's actually two voices that we hear from uh, in the text of Ecclesiastes. There is the author, which we don't exactly know who that is, and then there's the teacher. And the funny thing with the author is the author shows up in verse one and offers like a one-liner and then disappears for the rest of the book until at the very end, the author comes back and like summarizes everything. So it's like the author just tees it up and what we mostly hear from is the wisdom of the teacher. And again, we don't exactly know who the teacher is either. A lot of people and kind of the popular idea throughout most uh, of Christian history is uh, that King Solomon wrote this text and that's potentially like an acceptable answer. There are some uh, nuances, if you really wanna be nerdy with me, that make you wonder if that's really the case uh, because this was written by uh, a king of Israel, or at least that's what the text tells us. But um, if you know the story of King Solomon, by the time he was an old man and maybe had gathered his wisdom, he actually wasn't living all that wisely. He uh, had basically abandoned the God of Israel and instead was worshiping all kinds of other gods and had multiple wives who were influencing him from multiple cultures. And so he had kind of lost his way. And in that sense, it doesn't quite make sense that this would be the guy that we're listening to for wisdom. Uh, some scholars actually believe that maybe this wasn't like a literal king of Israel, but maybe it's like an icon that was meant to represent the wisdom of all of the good kings of Israel over the years, but ultimately it doesn't matter because what's powerful about this text isn't necessarily historically who wrote it, but it's the perspective that is introduced to us through it. And the book begins 
kind of like the start of a keynote speaker at a conference. Uh, the author shows up and introduces us to the teacher who we're going to hear from. And, and then the teacher offers their like thesis statement right out of the gate. So the author steps up in Ecclesiastes 1.1 and says, these are the words of the teacher, a son of David, a king in Jerusalem. And then right out of the bat, the teacher starts speaking. And right out of the bat, by verse 2, we bump into this kind of tricky translation problem. Because uh, remember, scripture wasn't written in English. Like these are ancient texts written in ancient languages. And, and so we have to work sometimes to get to the real meaning of what was there. And, and there's some tricky translation stuff in the text that it's really important for us to work through if we want to understand what Ecclesiastes is telling us. So the teacher uh, steps up and offers his thesis statement on life and what the world is like. And one of the most common translations says it this way, meaningless, meaningless says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And you're like, this is the guy we're gonna hang out with for 12 chapters, <laughs> awesome. Uh, there's another common translation. Uh, this is like what it was in the King James Bible, if you've ever read the King James, that says it this way, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We don't necessarily use the word vanity in the way that it was used uh, in its original context here. Uh, vanity for us a lot of times means kind of like selfishness or self-centeredness, or it's a piece of furniture that we put our makeup on at, but like that's not really uh, what the author is getting at here. Like he's not saying everything in life is self-centered and you should just worry about yourself. That, that's not what he means. And it's really important to understand too that like the author is not saying nothing matters in life. It can be easy to read it just on the surface in that way. When we see him saying everything is meaningless, uh, we draw this conclusion like, okay, this guy has experienced everything. He's lived through so much stuff and he's saying it's all meaningless. None of it matters. So he's got almost got this like on the surface agnostic kind of relativist posture. Where he's like, nothing matters. Just good luck. Enjoy your life. And you're like, how did this stuff get in the Bible? Like, wh what is this? The reason that this is so tricky is because those words like meaningless and vanity, while they kind of hint at what the original language meant, uh, it's not exactly what the original Hebrew implied. So we're going to teach a little more Hebrew today because uh, the word that we translate as vanity or as meaningless is the word hevel. It's not got as much to it, but like it's still an important term for us to learn uh, because the basic meaning of hevel it is actually most literally translated to smoke or vapor, like that good smelling, sm smelling stuff you smelled when you walked in today, right? It's smoke, it's, it's this image uh, of like smoke, which you can see, right? You can describe it, you can visualize it, but if you like try and reach out and grab it, it's not there, right? Like, uh, maybe you remember even being a kid and looking up at the clouds and thinking like, man, I could jump across the top of those, right? But if you've ever flown in an airplane or even just driven on a foggy day, you know, you go right through it. Like it, there's no bouncing on the clouds. It, that's kind of what this word is getting at, smoke, or vapor, the teacher is essentially saying everything is kind of like grabbing smoke. It's this vapor, it's this mist, it's this fog that's hard for us to see through. And Hevel is a big deal to the teacher. Uh, he uses it 38 times over the course of these 12 chapters in this book. So he's constantly coming back to the things that he experiences and he's saying it's vapor, it's smoke, or as we've translated it at times, it's meaningless. And I'll give you one example. Uh, in Ecclesiastes chapter 11, he says this, he says, however many years anyone may live, let them enjoy them all, but let them remember the days of darkness, for there will be many. Everything to come is Havel, right? It's vapor, it's meaningless. And, and so basically the teacher in this moment is saying like, hey, you're young and like enjoy it, right? You're going to have some great days and you should enjoy every single one of those days because one day you're not going to be. 
And if you're past the age of 30, you probably recognize this, right? Because like, like I'm feeling it after working on the building. Uh, it's like I didn't work that hard. I climbed up a ladder a couple of times. I pulled some conduit apart. I'm like, my hands are stiff. My back hurts. And like three or four years ago, this would not have been a problem, right? I've noticed in the things that I eat and how I feel after I eat those things. Like, and I've been told it's only going to get worse, okay? So, so like this is a phenomenon. If you're past that age, you know what th the teacher is talking about. He's like, one day, it, it's not like this is as slow of a progression, at least as you thought it would be. It's kind of just like one day you woke up and you hurt. And you're like, when did this happen? When did I, like, one day you were young and now it's vapor, right? And on goes life. Uh, there's another scholar named Michael Fox. It's not Michael J. Fox. It's a different guy. Uh, but he actually studied the wisdom literature. He wrote some commentaries on each of them. And in his uh, commentary on Ecclesiastes, he actually says that maybe a better word uh, for Havel, even than smoke or vapor in the context of the metaphor that the teacher is offering, is the idea of absurd. That the teacher is basically saying, it's absurd, isn't it? That life, like one day you're young and things are amazing and you're enjoying it and it's so good and then it's gone. That, that it's absurd that like sometimes people do everything right and they don't get the reward for it. That's not how it's supposed to work. That sometimes people do nothing right and yet they benefit from the hard work of other people. He, he's looking at all these experiences in life and he's saying that's absurd. That's absurd. That doesn't make sense. That's not how it's supposed to work. And then the teacher goes on and if you thought we were a little too dark already today, it's gonna get worse for a little bit here and then I'll pull us out, okay? Um, but the teacher goes on and basically throughout the course of his 12 chapters, he runs through three major themes or three disturbing things that he observes about the world that we just have to embrace. That, that's basically his perspective. It's like these things just are about life. And uh, we'll start as easy as we can and then it'll get a little worse from there. But he, he starts out and one of these major themes he talks about is the march of time. Not the march of the penguins, right? No Morgan Freeman in this one. Uh, he's just talking about the fact that we're born into time and that we have no control over time. Right? We're living in time right now. Our time is going to go and eventually we'll be gone. He, he describes it in this way right out of the beginning uh, in Ecclesiastes 1. So the teacher starts talking in verse 2 and by verse 4, he's saying this, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. No one remembers the former generations and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. My mom is really into genealogy, so she's got like the Ancestry.com account and all that stuff. And it's been fascinating as over the years she's dug back and looked up documents and tried to track our family's history. But it's always been remarkable to me like how small the window is of people that I know. And then like beyond that, how small the window is, is of information that we know about our family. And then it just kind of gets into this Havel, right? This like fog of like, I don't know where we came from. That's what the teacher is getting at is like, I want you to live for a legacy. I want you to like love your family right now. But after a few generations, we start to be forgotten, right? That life moves on. And so on this cosmic scale, we're just like a blip on the radar that stars are born and die and that planets are formed and that our galaxy is like rapidly expanding. And somewhere in the midst of that backdrop, our lives are this little snapshot that happens. Uh, everything that you're worried about, like all the stress that you're carrying, all the things that you love, it's just like, poop, that's it in the cosmic scale. And so the teacher is observing that time marches on and that none of us can really do anything about it. And then it gets a little bleaker because the second observation that the teacher makes is that we're all gonna die. And it's not like this character, like he's not saying the sky is falling, like <laughs> he's not saying we're all gonna die right now, but rather he's talking about this perspective that we have to understand that our time on this earth is limited, that eventually all of us have the same outcome. And here's how the teacher says it in Ecclesiastes 3. 
He says, surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. So again, not a fun guy to hang out with at a party, right? Like, it, this isn't the guy you're like, hey, tell him the one about us being like the animals. Like, this is kind of a bummer to hear, but he shares it as this sobering perspective for us to like face the brutal facts of what life really is. And it seems bleak and it seems depressing, but it's not really offered to us to bring us down per se. Um, it's kind of offered in uh, the concept of a phrase that's actually kind of bumped back into popularity in recent days. It's a phrase called memento mori. It's Latin that basically means remember that you will die. And the, the concept behind it actually goes back to early Christianity and early Judaism in some ways. Sometimes people actually reference scriptures from Ecclesiastes to describe this phrase. But it's this perspective that says, like, understand your time is limited so that you leverage the time that you have well. Right? Understand that, that this is a dynamic that we will all face, and so we need to be careful about how we use the days that we have. And then the teacher offers a third reality that we all have to engage with in life. And it's really the nature of life's randomness, that life can have this random nature to it at times. Uh, Proverbs not, is not like this, right? Proverbs spells things out and is like clear cause, clear effect. If you're wise, this will happen. If you're a fool, that will happen. But then the teacher in Ecclesiastes goes along and like highlights all the glitches in that system. Like, yeah, but what about here? And what about there? And I experienced this and I found out it was all hevel. It was all vapor. And the teacher goes on and highlights some of these glitches in Ecclesiastes 9. He says, I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not always to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. So he's saying like sometimes people train really hard for the race and they don't win. Like they do everything right and they don't get the outcome that they deserve. Sometimes people are really good with their money and they still lose their money or they give it to like the next generation and all the trust fund kids just blow it. Like uh, he's describing this phenomenon, but he says, regardless of that, time and chance happens to everybody. Like no matter what you do, no matter what your inputs are or what the outcomes are, time and chance happen to all of us. Sometimes things just happen to us. And his point is that we really can't control nearly as much as we think that we can that life is just too unpredictable, that sometimes things just happen. And so if you're like, man, we should have gone to the lake today. <laughs> like, why, why are we talking about this depressing stuff on Father's Day? Like, come on, man. Uh, it, remember, it really hinges on the critic's perspective and this idea of hevel. The, the critic is not describing all of this kind of bleak and heavy stuff to bring us down and to say, none of it matters, so good luck. But rather, the critic is saying, we've got to remember, like, Life as we experience, it's here and then it's gone. It, it's this vapor, it's, it, it's like smoke. Life can be incredibly unclear at times. But what the teacher is getting at is that life has meaning. It can just be hard to grasp in a moment. That life has meaning ultimately, but in like little snapshots, it's Havel, right? It's, it's hard to grasp, it's hard to hold on to. So what do we do with that perspective? Like if this is true and it's stacked up right next to Proverbs, like there's this cause and effect, but then there's these glitches in the system. What do we do with that? Surprisingly, at the end of Ecclesiastes, at the end of his long depressing monologue, the teacher actually acknowledges the perspective of Proverbs. The teacher stops and says, actually, you know what? Like, I mean, everything I said, I've experienced all these things. I call it all Havel. It's all like vapor. It's all like smoke. And so in light of that, he says, it's probably good to still live in wisdom and to fear the Lord, which seems counterintuitive, right? He's like, none of it matters. 
but you should probably still do it. And the reason he says that is he's like, it's right. You should still do it because it's right. And more often than not, it does work out. Like if you're wise, more often than not, you'll reap the benefits of wisdom. And if you're a fool, more often than not, you'll experience the detriment of foolishness. So he's saying like, you should still do this. There's still something to that perspective from Proverbs. This is again, why we have to hold them all in tension. But he actually warns at one point about being overly righteous and overly unrighteous. And the teacher basically says like, since you can't control everything, you should stop trying to. And instead you should learn to live open-handed with your life. Yes, fear the Lord. Yes, pursue wisdom as Proverbs has explained to you but learn how to hold those things with an open hand. Or maybe another way to say it is to learn how to live in the present. And we are so remarkably bad about this. Uh, most of us either analyze the past over and over again or anticipate the future, right? We're like, we're trying to figure out what we just went through or we're all anxious about what we're going through, but very rarely do we actually live in the present. And if you're like, man, this is sounding kind of like Buddhist-y, Eastern, like be here now kind of stuff, remember, this religion, like this faith that we have, it originated in the Middle East. It, there's Eastern elements to our faith. And so Ecclesiastes is holding this in conversation with many other faith traditions. But essentially the point that the teacher is making is that good and bad life is a gift from God, that you have it, right? It's that vapor and you have it while you have it and it should all be experienced and it should all be enjoyed. I was thinking about this. Uh, like I said, my daughter's about to turn five in August, which it feels like, like it's like what I remember being in the hospital and it's been five years like how is that possible some of you are looking at me like you have no idea buddy right <laughs> it's gonna go even quicker but man I'm just blown away by it and I was thinking about it this weekend because we were up at the lake yesterday and we got the speedboat out for the first time uh, my uncle was driving it and I had like my little five-year-old blonde curly-haired girl sitting in the back literally just yelling she's going woo <laughs> as the boat's going around and I had this talk in mind and I was like it's good right it, it's it's Havel, it's, it, there it is, and I should hold it while it's here because someday it'll be gone, right? Someday it'll be gone. Uh, honestly, I was thinking about it on the other side. It's Father's Day, I was thinking about my dad. Uh, he's still with us, his dad isn't, so I was thinking about my grandpa, and I'm like, man, there it is, right? It's good. Like, I, I spent some time with my dad yesterday, and I'm like, that's, that's good. I miss my grandpa. That's hard, but it's all there, and I've got it, and it should be held. It should be enjoyed while we have it because we don't have it forever. Uh, the point and the perspective of Ecclesiastes is the, the good and the bad are these gifts from God, and we should hold it all open-handedly, and we should recognize it all and discover this surprising gift of wisdom along the way as we just experience life and we remain present in the moment. And then here's what's unique about how Ecclesiastes wraps up and how we'll wrap up today. Uh, what's really funny about this book of the Bible, unlike I think any other book of the Bible, is the author comes back at the end and basically offers a warning that says, don't hang out in this book too long. <laughs> like he comes back and like, this is good. You should read this, but don't read it too much. Uh, they come back and the author speaks up and basically wants to illustrate for us the point of what the teacher just said wasn't to make us lose hope, but rather it was to teach us to have this kind of confident humility about how we go through life. It's almost like the author is the teacher's chaperone and comes alongside and is like, okay, that's good. Listen to him, but remember, <laughs> like, like listen to me. And here's what the author says. This is the words of the wise are like goads, which a goad was this uh, little sharp point or like a spear basically that was put on the edge of a shepherd's stick in the ancient world to kind of prod the sheep along. It says the words of the wise are like that. They, they hurt sometimes, right? They're like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. 
He says, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. In other words, the perspective is almost like, this is enough, okay? Like, like listen to the teacher, but you don't need to do this a lot. Like, you don't, you don't need to add to it. And in fact, he says, of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. If you, this is where I'm talking about. You have to hold it all in tension. If you just live in Ecclesiastes, that's not a good way to live. That's not the way to really experience the fullness of life. But here's the conclusion the author makes. It says, now that all has been heard, here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Right? There's pr- Proverbs again. It's like, still live wisely, despite everything you've just heard. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So the author comes along and basically says, listen, you just heard a whole lot about how uncertain and how difficult it is to really grasp onto life, that it's all hevel, it's vapor, it's meaningless. But then the author comes back and goes, one day it won't be. Right? One day it won't all be hevel, it won't all be here and it'll be gone. One day God will clear it up. One day God will set everything right and everything that we do and the way that we live will be held accountable to and everything that's happened to us will be held to account as well. That, that there is meaning in life. We just don't always experience it in the moment. So we should remain open-handed. We should trust God. We should still fear God and do our best to walk in his ways, which is the other voice that we need to hear. We've talked about wisdom and what it looks like to live from Proverbs perspective. We've talked about what it looks like to experience life when the Proverbs wisdom doesn't seem to pan out from a human perspective. Job is gonna come along next week and is gonna offer us a perspective on where God has been all along through our own struggling and through our own striving. So before we get there, let me pray for you. God, uh, this text, it can be so confusing, it can be so difficult. Again, it'd be kind of a downer (laughs) if we read it through the wrong lens. And I just pray that we would have ears to hear what you have for us today, uh, that we would have the wisdom to know what to do with what we've heard and the courage to actually do it. And God, that all of us could actually live with this perspective in mind that our time on this earth is limited. So we should make the most of our time, that, that we can hold open-handedly towards the things that we experience because at the end of the day, we don't actually control that much. Instead, it's our job to, to love you, to try and follow you and to love the people around us. And so God, I pray that hearing this perspective today can open us up to that, that we wouldn't be so rigid in black and white that we don't create room for the things we don't understand, but rather that we could welcome the things we don't understand as a part of the experience, knowing that someday you will redeem it all and leverage it all. We pray and we ask all of that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. If you live in or near the Peru, Indiana area, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend gatherings. To find directions, service times, and information about our environments for kids, visit us at storyperu.com.